Fortier is the author of two international best-selling dual timeline mysteries that dig deep into our favourite stories, those stories that are deep in the psyche of Western culture. First in Juliet, exploring the Romeo and Juliet tragedy, and then in The Lost Sisterhood, the single-breasted Amazons of antiquity, and asking, is there a secret Amazon chapter still operating out there? A bit like a female knights of the Templar? They're fanciful, inspirational books. And Anne was a delightful interview subject. I'd never have known about her except for a recommendation from one of our binge reading fans, Tracy. A big shout out to you, Tracy, for suggesting we talk to Anne. I'm sure you'll enjoy the result. Welcome to the joys of binge reading. The show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading Today, Anne tells us how she responded when, as a 13-year-old would-be author, an editor told her, good literature doesn't have happy endings. Happily, Anne ignored his or her advice and her story does. But before we get to Anne, just a reminder, Binge Reading is now on Patreon and we love, value, cherish your support there. For the equivalent of a cup of coffee a month, you'll get exclusive fortnightly bonus content and the satisfaction of knowing you're helping to support popular fiction authors like Anne at the same time. Check out the details at patreon.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now, here's Anne. Hello there, Anne, and welcome to the show. It's so good to have you with us. Thanks so much, Jenny. It's wonderful to talk with you. And I think perhaps this might be the furthest that we've reached in the show because you're talking from Denmark and I'm in New Zealand. So that's got a lovely feel to it. I think it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I know that it's always a little bit confusing, you know, time zone, this and that. But, you know, when we meet in literature, there is no time zone. There's no day and night. It's all just we're just in this special space together. And I love that space. That is wonderful. Now, look, you've got two wonderful books to your credit. They've both been international bestsellers. We'll get on to talking about them. Both of them have have got a very original premise that the story has hung around. And it impresses me that you are a person who's got a spirited approach to your writing. And so I was captivated by this quote that was in the back of one of your books. An editor told you once there are no happy endings in good literature. And you say, I knew I would never write good literature at that point. Now, this is wonderful. I think you were only a very young person when this exchange took place. Tell us about that. I was one of those children who, uh, I suppose I was a little bit eccentric. I think that's a nice way to phrase it, right? If if children can be eccentric, but I was strange. I was weird, <laughs> right? And I was always writing and always thinking. And my mom was and is still one of these lovely ladies who doesn't want to do anything that's conformist in any way. So we were listening to Italian opera very loudly out the windows and the neighbors thought we were crazy. <laughs> so. 
so I was, you know, I was one of those kids who was hazed, hazed in school and teased. And, and I just sort of retreated into my little corner with my grandfather's typewriter and typed up these stories. And, you know, I, I just, I, I, I just, I could not live in that because when you write a book, you live in that space. And I needed a space with happy endings. I just, so, so when he said that to me, there was not a moment's doubt. I, I didn't think to myself, oh, geez, that, that's probably what he wanted me to realize. Oh, I've got to stop writing these happy endings, these romantic stories. No, no, I just don't know. <laughs> well, that's it for me then. Uh, I'm not going to change how I write because this is my happy space. That is wonderful. And how old were you when you had that revelation? <laughs> I was 13. <laughs> <laughs> Remarkable. So the two books that you've, you've published so far, I mean, I guess there's probably quite a few manuscripts that haven't seen the light of day if you've been madly writing. But the one that we're talking about today, the latest one, is called The Lost Sisterhood, and it tackles the centuries-long fascination that our cultures had with the Amazons, the mythical or not-so-mythical female warriors of ancient Greek, Greek literature. Tell us a bit about how the story formed for you. Well, it's a very good question because I actually had that idea before I wrote Juliet, which is the book that came out four years earlier. But Juliet just sort of happened and I had to write it. But before that, I had been working on the Amazon idea for years. And, and because I, you know, I sort of, I grew up in academia. I spent a lot of time in dusty libraries in Oxford and elsewhere. And every time I had to write through or read through Latin literature and so on, I always, whenever I saw the word Amazon, I just stopped. Oh, there they are. And I made, I suppose I made these little mental escapes and made little notes about the Amazons and a picture formed for me about them. And, uh, and, and based on all that I found when I wasn't really looking for them, I was looking for other things for my thesis. I, I just had this, this treasury, I had this treasure box of things I knew about the Amazons and also some of the lesser known things, such as the, the myth that I draw on in this book. And that is that actually the earliest uh, story of the Amazons, you know, I like these early stories, right? The earliest story of the Amazons was actually from North Africa and suggests that that they were from what was called ancient Libya and they had a queen called Marina and she was a fearsome warrior, which is very different from the story that you hear in the in some of the Greek stories where they all horse people coming down the, from the steppes from the east and so on. So I wanted to, to merge the known and the unknown myths of the Amazons. And, and that's what I'm trying to it's, it's, It was a tall, ambitious order in that book. It sure was. Yes, it is a dual timeline story and you do have an academic who is almost against her better judgment drawn into a search for Amazon in an ancient site, Amazon leftovers. And she recognises that being involved in this research is going to probably harm her academic career because there isn't a great deal of credibility associated with it. But she can't help herself. She just is drawn into it, isn't she? 
She is. And, uh, you know, it's funny because when I was when I was doing all this research, that was a, a few years before the whole Me Too thing took off. Right. And before Wonder Woman, I was a little bit ahead of my time, I'm afraid. You know, so had that book come out just uh, just when Wonder Woman came out, it, it would have been much bigger. Right. But it came out a few years early. People had no idea who the Amazons were. And so that was that was too bad because in academia at the time, and in the world at large, I think people sort of thought that's ridiculous. <laughs> this idea of these women, this is just silly. And in academia, for sure, you know, there were, I, I'm trying to be quite truthful in my description of the prejudice against these things. But now things have happened that have changed the, the atmosphere, but also uh, the more of a respect for research into women and women in the ancient world. There's a lot more respect around it now. In fact, I think you probably would get money for funding if you applied for that now. But also something important has happened in our scientific uh, capabilities, Jenny, and that is that as I actually write in the book, I try to bring out some of this research into the books, right, without being heavy-handed. But what has happened is that we are now able to go in and DNA test things that we couldn't DNA test before. So back in the day when scholars, male and female scholars, scoffed at the idea of these female warriors, uh, well, that's because they didn't realize that some decades later, we would be able to do DNA testing that showed that Lo and behold, some of those skeletons that were found with weapons and horses buried the way you'd bury a male warrior, they were female. And that's something that we now know, but that's only in the last few years they've been able to do that. So all of a sudden, you know, Diana, the, the main character, is not quite as controversial anymore, but she's sort of, she's cutting edge. In the book, she's, she's absolutely cutting edge and she is risking something on her pursuit there. Yes, and those um, skeletons that you're talking about, where were they found buried? Well, I can tell you that there's been a lot of this going on in Russia and uh, in the former uh. Soviet Union. So from the steppes going into the Black Sea area, and you thought they have boxes and boxes full of skeletons and skulls and just get them started on how you, because, the, you know, we might think that you can tell female and male bones apart, but it's actually quite hard. And sometimes you don't find everything, you just find a skull. But apparently female skulls are more softer and rounder and you want to touch them. And, you know, and then there is that thing about, as I always also bring out in the book, I, there's this thing about when, when female skeletons have gone through childbirth, well, not the skeleton, but the woman, right? When the woman went through childbirth, something happens to her pelvis. And there's a certain stress on the pelvis that can sometimes be seen in the skeleton later on, right? That damage done is still there. And so you can see it sometimes, but not always. And that's interesting that it partly supports the idea of them coming from the steps, because you did research for this book in Tunisia, didn't you? <laughs> well, actually, I was there before I thought of this book. Okay, so this oh, is, see. Okay. The, what's funny about this is that I was doing, I was traveling all these places before I realized, I mean, before I was looking for the Amazon. So when I wrote the book, I went back 
in my mind, back in my research and back in my notes and my photographs to look at what I'd actually seen. And everything was very vivid in my mind, but that was how I didn't actually, well, that's not entirely true uh, because I did go to Germany I went to Kalkrise, to uh, to Teutoburgerwald, in search of the Amazons, because at that point I knew what I was looking for, and I found it, right? But back in the day when I was traveling in Tunisia and Greece and walking through dusty excavation sites with friends, and, you know, the Rebecca character is based on one of one of my friends who also, you know, was, was a driving force behind our archaeological endeavors in Knossos and so on, right? Um, yes. You know, the <laughs> The, all those, all those travels and all those, you know, uh, excavations and so on that I visited, uh, that was before I was writing the book. But it still came in useful when you started to write, yes. Look, I wondered about the Wonder Woman franchise because that's been incredibly successful. I gather, I looked them up after I'd read your book just to see, and, and they're actually now in the middle of producing the third one in that franchise, aren't they? They are. You know, I saw the first one and of course I love the fact that it's the Amazons, but, but I, you know, yeah. <laughs> but, but there's, I don't know. I think it's wonderful, but there's something slightly corny about Mar the Marvel franchise, but you know, that's their winning formula. It's, it's camp, right? It's campy. It's, it's corny on purpose and we love it. It's, it's camp and, and it's, it's a part of our culture to love that sort of thing. And I love it too, but I suppose I want a little more grit in those Amazons, right? It's too shiny, yes, it's yes. Too, too easy, too shiny. I imagine that it was a bit challenging for you as as a, an academic to, to look at some, I imagine there's probably a huge amount of historical discrepancy there. <laughs> well, it's funny that you say that because, you know, I have very good friends who are professors around the world in, you know, ancient languages, and, and it always impresses me how much these people love Anytime there's a mention in pop culture of the ancient world, because it makes people interested in it. So they actually, yes. they're not snobs. These people are not snobs. They actually, they love it. I remember when Gladiator came out many years ago, they just loved it because it brought students into the department who wanted to learn Latin uh, and learn about the Roman Empire all over again. Yeah. Looks lovely. The most exciting part of the premise, um, and I hope I'm not giving anything away when we talk about this, is that there is an underlying idea that there might be a secret Amazon culture still living somewhere in the world today. Now, that's a lovely little kind of secret, a bit like the Knights Templar in female form. Um, do you think that idea resonates with contemporary audiences? I, I hope so. I mean, it, it's certainly one of my personal fantasies. You know, I, I think that I, I think that I, I don't think that we need to let men keep the secret societies to themselves. Do we? Right? <laughs> I, why can't we have a secret society? And I think that a lot of women feel. I, I think we all feel we we have a sort of a sisterhood. We have an understanding. We we know what's going on. We know who you know. Like the old joke goes: when the when the phone rings, the woman says, "Do you want to talk to the one in charge or the one who knows what's going on?" Right? <laughs> Do you want to talk to the man or the woman? Right? <laughs> and, and and we're a lot of people who know what's going on. But, you know, we operate at a, I don't want to say a lower level, but we, we just quietly make things happen. 
And yes. we don't necessarily tell uh, everybody about it, right? And I think that a lot of people, a lot of women will have have this idea in their hearts of a secret sisterhood that we belong to. I certainly do. Uh, maybe yes. I'm too romantic, but I like to think so. <laughs> That's wonderful. Look, we've mentioned your first book and it takes the story of Romeo and Juliet and brings it into the contemporary world, as well as going back to the very original story that predated the Shakespearean version. One of the things that really impressed me was you seem to know that play incredibly well. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, I knew the, the play before, but I never, here's a little secret, <laughs> I never really liked it. I, I really didn't. I'd see, I remember seeing it a couple of times as a student, as a sort of a high school student and, and reading it in high school. And, and it always, it, I didn't really care for it. I didn't like, I don't, as you know, I don't like things that don't end well. I want happy endings. So that, that was a strike against it in the first. But it's just too, it's too dumb the way, you know, the way things go so wrong and how can she let him talk her into this? And, and these frustrations, of course, you, I love the language. I love what Shakespeare does with the story, but a lot of these, it's, it's sort of a, I have, I have an argument with this play and I try to bring that into the book. I try to, you know, I won't give anything away, but the characters in the book, they really have it out over whether Romeo was a hero or not. They really bat that idea around what's heroic about this play? What's what's commendable? And how can we change this play so that it's satisfying? How can we change the story? And obviously, you know me now, create a happy ending. <laughs> yes, yes. The key character inherits a key to a safety box in Siena after her mother dies. And she's supposedly going back there to find some family treasure. But what she finds is this incredible link that her family has right back to the Romeo and Juliet story. And she finds that the so-called curse, the plague on both their houses still exists today. So that's a great setup for a story, isn't it? <laughs> Especially as the, the Romeo character that she supposedly has got to get on with, they have an instant dislike when they first meet. So that that's even makes it more interesting. <laughs> well, I, I certainly love that, that that part of it. And, and you know what? That was inspired by my many uh, travels in Italy also. I think that I had an old professor once who said, you know, we modern people, we think we're so scientific and we're so rational, but you know, we're just as irrational as the ancients were. And they had their oracles and we have our computers. It's the same darn thing, right? And, you know, there's 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 truth to that. And I, I do think that humans are, we're engineered to be uh, superstitious. <laughs> I think we're engineered to be spiritual. And the shadow side, I suppose, is that we believe also in curses. We want to believe in a good, we want to believe in goodness and then a great power of creativity and love, but we also are sensitive to a sensation of, of curses and evil. When you go to Italy, it walks among you. The Italians are so intuitive, They're sort of uh, clairvoyant. Their minds transcend what's going on. I have such respect for their insights. As I say, I think I should call it intuition. And the way they see things that we don't see that aren't maybe, well, I don't 
see them until they point them out and then I feel them. It's very hard to even for me to put words on this, but the Italians taught me the power of talking about curses, talking about someone who can have an evil hand, someone who can have evil eyes. And, and intuitively, I feel it too. When I'm there, I understand it and I take it with me. And that's how that got into the story. It's from my friends in Siena and, and in, in Italy. It's really there. It's not, just, it's not just a fancy I came up with. It's real. And it was a visit to Siena that sparked that story, I believe, was it? Absolutely. Yes, my, my mother has traveled in Italy a lot. She also lived and worked there when she was younger. And she wanted me to come and experience Siena. And when we were there, she was the one who told me that she discovered that the first version of the Romeo and Juliet story, which, is, which was actually written hundreds of years before Shakespeare's version of the same story, and that was set in Siena. And I think I immediately thought, wow, that's amazing. I had no idea that Romeo and Juliet was not a story Shakespeare invented. I was That was how little I knew at the time about Shakespeare. Later, of course, I realized, oh my goodness, he actually had a, a story scout who found stories for him all over Europe and would bring them back and say, hey, Will, <laughs> I, look what I found. Great story. Can you put it through your magic machine? He did, you know. But that story was actually from the late 15th century and set in Siena with a pair of very different characters. Yeah, and your mother helped you with quite a bit of the research because I understand from what I read that at the time you were still working full-time in other areas and you would lob a query to her and she would go and find the answer for you. Absolutely. she. I couldn't have done it without her. It was a fantastic partnership because I was in the States. I was working on doing a, actually a documentary about the Finnish Winter War, which that a lot of that material ended up in the Lost Sisterhood because I had been working on that documentary. But I could not just fly back and forth to Italy all the time as much as I wanted to. Trust me, I couldn't. I, I, I didn't have the time and I couldn't afford it. But mom was in Italy all the time. So whenever she said, you know, I'm going to go back to Siena in a couple of weeks, what do you want? What's on the list? And I would give her a list of, you know, photos, floor plans and, and specific things like, uh, mom, could you figure out you know that old hospital, there's a hospital, there's a hospital there from that, that dates back before the plague, the bubonic plague. And I, I'm saying, mom, could you figure out, uh, could you find a way to get into the basement? See what's going on there. Draw me a floor plan, right? And so she would, she would find someone and uh, sweet talk them. And, you know, Danish professor Rasa was going to come and visit and she would go in there. And I said, the worst one I think was uh, saying to her, Mom, you know, I, I need to break into this bank, I think. Could you could you go into the bank and just see where the cameras and how would you break into this bank? So I went she went into this bank and sat down with her pad and started drawing the, the, the floor plan discreetly and said, you know, at some point it just became uncomfortable because these guards, you know, in Italy they have guns, right? They have these huge guns. And the guys starting started looking at me. <laughs> I think they really thought I was planning to rob the bank. So she went out again. She said, it was close. It was close. <laughs> <laughs> 
Look, that brings us beautifully into uh, segueing into talking a little about your wider career because you've you've written these two wonderful books, but you've had amazing career apart from that, including transitioning from Denmark to the the US. So tell us something about your background before you got into these books. And remarkably, English is not your first language, is it? But you, you've made a remarkable job of mastering it. You're very kind. Thank you. I appreciate it. I come from Denmark, so that's a very small language group. If you want to go anywhere, you've got to learn languages and you start with English, obviously. So I had to as well. But you know what? I, I always wanted to work in media. Uh, so that's my education was, you know, ideas, history of ideas and uh, communication. And I worked in television. And then I went to the States and writing was a hobby for me. I, I never thought I could actually be a professional writer. I never thought I could live <laughs> being, a, that could be my career. I always thought I'd have to have a side gig in television or something. And so that's how I started working on the, you know, and, and made the documentary and so on. But then it's just too, too stressful for me. I, I don't have, I, I just don't have, I don't have the the makeup to be, a television person I I don't it's too hard it's not uh, physically or anything but you know you have to be rather ruthless in television and you have to cut people off and you have to negotiate producers who are only thinking about you know they're only thinking about the quota the money being somewhere and sometimes you have to interrupt some old person some sweet old person who's been waiting for you all day like in Finland sitting from early morning in his old war uniform, waiting for Hollywood to arrive. And Hollywood arrives. That's what they thought we were, right? Hollywood comes and then your executive producer says, no, I can't interview him. His voice is not good. We're moving on. And then having to have that conversation and insisting, I don't care. You can let pretend you run the camera, save your bloody tapes excuse me don't run don't put a tape in but make it look like you do we're gonna stay and we're gonna hear this guy's story and yeah. oh, i'm gonna kill you <laughs> and I, really, I really felt sometimes i was gonna kill him and so you know oh, that, that, that maybe sounds a little pathetic but that's the kind of person you have to be and I couldn't do that. I just could not be that in between the human being and the producer, that the executive, mm-hmm. I can't be that buffer. It's not, you know, my heart, I can't do it. <laughs> so I'm the kind of person I need to be in my pajamas. I need to sort of shuffle around a little dazed uh, and try to remember my own name because I'm thinking so deeply about my stories and just sit down and write and not have to worry too much. Like the, the, you can, you'll get a 500 page manuscript from me before you get a 10 line bio because those kinds of administrative things, I just, it just doesn't, I can't do it. It, it, and the same, you know, when I was in school, my teachers are always saying, Anna, this is not a novel, it's a physics report, or it's a social studies report. It is not a novel. I'm going to have to give you a really bad grade. <laughs> oh, I got really bad grades for those social studies reports, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, look, that also leads on beautifully to the question I do like to ask everyone. Is there one thing you've done more than any other in your writing career that's a tr- contributed to your success? Because 
I mean, having two books published as you have and internationally sold, Juliet, I think, went to 30 countries and they're both under development in some form or other for TV and film. How did you manage to break through in that way? And was there something special that you did, you think? That's a very good question. I think that I will have to to start by saying that I could not have done that. I, I, I had to listen to my mother. Growing up, I listened to my mother and I kept listening to her as a source of inspiration and encouragement. And then my husband, who could talk me back to believing I could do it uh, when I thought I couldn't. I could not have done it without those two wonderful people. But I will also say that one thing, and, and I know this because a lot of people approach me now, they want me to read what they've written or not written or listen to ideas and so on. But you know what? I was brought up to be a very hard worker. I was brought up to to finish something and make it really good before I started going out and talking about it. And and I think that that is, that is one way where I had a head start, or was, what would you say, a little bit of an upper hand. I, I, I came forward with something that was already finished. It was already triple checked. It was a good product that I offered. And and I didn't try, I didn't try to work through some connections because I didn't have any connections. I didn't try to cold call someone or elevator pitch someone. I just read the to-do list. What do you do? What do you not? I followed all those, those uh, all the advice on the internet. And uh, back before that, all, I got the book about how to get published. And I, I read from page one and I followed it. I never knew anyone. I was a, a, an immigrant. I, I was a nobody and I followed those suggestions, how to do everything. And then I just, I just did it. I worked hard. I'm, I'm proud to say that because that's how my mom brought me up to work hard. Never assume, never think you can just waltz in and pitch someone on an idea unless you have it ready. Great. That's wonderful. Look, turning to Anne as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, we love to know what you like to read and what you would recommend to listeners for reading. And this is a little bit in the genre and entertainment area, but we're interested just very widely. What are you reading and what would you recommend? I love <laughs> that you asked this question. And I will say that there were many, I, I was an avid reader as a child and I would absolutely binge read on, on, okay, so are you ready for this? Yes, yes. Barbara Cartland. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, I could just binge read on Barbara Cartland and I could, and Edith Blyton, the famous five when I was a kid and, and all those kinds of things. I, I would literally have a, a, I would have two huge bags with books going home on all sorts of holidays to read. I read and I read and I read the whole library twice over. Um, and, but always with happy endings, of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, I prefer books to happy When growing up, um, I, I love, one of the books that really inspired me was Catherine Neville's The Eight. Do you know that one? No, I don't. Oh my goodness, Jenny. It is amazing. It's, it's Catherine Neville is her name and it's called The Eight. And I recommend that to anyone who likes, and that's actually a dual time story as well. Anyone who loves an adventure, and, and it, when you read that, which I hope you will, you'll see how that inspired me to do the dual time narrative. I love that book. I also uh, love Jane Johnson, The Tenth Gift. It's a shocking book. 
about piracy uh, really challenges you. And that that is also a yeah, she always she also plays with the dual times and so on. And and that is wonderful. I also love just to be a little more, you know, <laughs> a little more highfalutin. I, I was very inspired by Foucault's pendulum, Umberto Eco's Foucault's pendulum. Never really could get the name of the rose, but Foucault's Pendulum was a fantastic book that I recommend. But I'm going to tell you what I'm binging on right now. Yes. And what's on my bedside table, because right now I'm in Denmark, right? I, I actually live in Canada, but I'm in Denmark with my mother. We had a little health issue. And so I'm here with mom and I had to leave in a hurry. And I've been here for three months and we're working through it all. But, you know, when I when I go into my room at night and I, I'm all by myself and I just have to relax, I read Louis L'Amour. Oh, really? Yes, those cowboy stories. Yeah. Yeah, they've written probably for men, I suppose. But you know what? They're about honest young people uh, who are trying to do what's right, just just do the right thing. And I just need to be in that space. You know, cowboys with guns and horses and, you know, sincere young men who are, you know, working to civilize a, a wild country. I love that. Yeah, that's gorgeous. So turning to the next year or so, what is on for you at the moment with your writing? Do you have new projects under development? I do. I actually worked on a book that turned out not to be the right thing. for. That took me three years and then I started something else. So it's been a few years since The Lost Sisterhood came out because I've been searching for the exact right thing because everybody wants a new Juliet. That's okay, but I think I've got it. And I finished the first draft last year and now I'm working and now I'm editing it. And it's it's huge. I promised my husband I'd never write such a huge book again, but I'm afraid <laughs> that this is pretty huge too. And we're going to go back to uh, some famous Greek mythological people and present day. So it's going to be a dual time narrative again with some famous names, hopefully a bit shocking and sensual and all that. Uh, while at the same time, I am working with people to turn... Uh, Juliet and the Lost Sisterhood into uh, scripts for a TV series. It's been ongoing for years. There have been people trying to turn Juliet into film and then television and multiple deals and negotiations. And, and it just all comes down to the fact that nobody's been able to write a good script or really, and we've just not had a writer who's, who really did what's but what I wanted and what anyone really wanted. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to do it myself. Fortunately, I have a wonderful mentor out in LA who's holding my hand and inspiring me and saying, Anna, you can do this. Hopefully something will come of this very shortly. We've been very close to signing various deals and Edda signed deals too and nothing worked. But but I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we'll see those those two stories, or at least one of them, on TV very soon. Fantastic. That sounds wonderful. Now, where can your readers find you online? And do, do you like to, you know, relate to your readers online? I love to. I'm not the best at it. I'm not very good at social media. I, I don't, I, I have a Twitter account. I, I don't tweet. And I, I started Instagram, but I don't post anything on Instagram. I, I'm old fashioned. I Facebook, that's the probably 
That's a good place. Facebook. I, I haven't checked it for months because I'm here in Denmark and things are a little hectic. But it, during periods when I'm when I remember my name and who I am, I do go and I do check and I do answer questions and I do post things when I have something to say. I don't want to just post things when I don't have anything to say. I think that's cheesy. So I post things when I have something to say. And then I have a website as nforty.com. And uh, it's just, it's you know what, it's in the process It's probably a total mess right now because I was in the process of, of redoing it when I had to go to Denmark and now it's all just, it's a bit mess right now, but I'm there and 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 people can contact me during those uh, things. I actually do coaching online as well. If anybody's writing a book, I do coach uh, special projects. If it's a project with a happy ending, no, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> It, it, well, I do prefer happy endings, but I do occasionally coach projects through Skype or Zoom or something. So if someone is sitting out there with a project or something they're writing, no matter what stage they're at, I do coach. And it's something I enjoy tremendously. So that's a possibility to you. Just contact me through the website. Look, that's just been wonderful talking to you. And I'm sure you will get some takers on that wonderful advice. So thanks so much, Anne. It's been wonderful having you with us today. Thank you so much, Jenny. It was so exciting to spend time with you and talk about books and reading. It's really, it's my happy place. So thank you for giving that to me today. <laughs> wonderful, dear. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.